open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians. We continue in our study of this rich and powerful book of the Bible. We are looking at the resurrection and what Paul has outlined for us in chapter 15. It is the beginning of the final major theme that is found in the book of Corinthians. And so as Paul is now focusing on the truth of the resurrection, there's several pieces of this by way of reminder and by way of preparation for today that will be beneficial for us. A resurrection theology is a vital component of Christian theology. And this resurrection theology is central to the gospel message, particularly as it looks forward to the second advent of Christ where He comes back again and are also being resurrected like He was, our resurrection with Him in bodily form. So this resurrection theology was prominent in the teachings of Jesus. It was prominent in the early teaching of the apostles. For example, in the first the first two messages recorded in the book of Acts, after the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, each of those messages focused on the resurrection of Christ as foretold through the Scriptures and the significance of that confirming that Jesus really was the Messiah that He claimed to be. So the resurrection of believers from the dead, the resurrection of believers from the dead signals the consummation of all things when the Son of the King, excuse me, when the Son, <clears throat> when, when the Son hands the kingdom over to the Father, as is outlined in verse 24, death is finally destroyed, as we see in verse 26, so that God may be all and in all, as we see in verse 28. So this chapter that we're looking at here, 1 Corinthians 15, is the most, most in-depth scripture or excuse me, the most in-depth discussion of bodily resurrection in all of Scripture. The parallel passage in 1 Thessalonians is believed to have been written while Paul was in Corinth. So what he wrote to the Thessalonians, he likely was teaching to the Corinthians, and he is now reciting what he taught to the Thessalonians during his time with them as recorded in the book of Acts. Now the problem that Paul is focusing on in this chapter is not their disbelief in the resurrection of Christ, but disbelief or confusion about their own bodily resurrection at some point in the future. So as we will see today, the central verse in this entire chapter is found in verse 12, the second part of this, and this is the question that Paul will deal with and the problem that he is going to address. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So this is the central issue. There were many in the church that denied the bodily resurrection of the dead. And there's a combination of reasons why they believe this. Very difficult to piece together with precision the culture and the practice of the early church at Corinth. But three likely reasons why there was this disbelief in their own bodily resurrection. There had not yet been given a detailed doctrinal teaching teaching about resurrection theology, specifically the bodily resurrection of the believer. Secondly, when Paul left Corinth after his 18-month visit there, false teachers came in and began to unteach much of what he had taught them. And thirdly, because they were so infatuated with the worldly philosophies of the day, 
Those philosophies did not allow for a physical bodily resurrection in the afterlife. So these three things together led them to believe that Jesus was in fact raised from the dead, but there was confusion and disbelief about their own bodily resurrection in the future. So as Paul is dealing with this throughout this chapter, he does address eschatological or end times issues, but his intent in this passage is not to give a detailed account of the end times, nor is he trying to answer all the questions related to end times theology. His focus is on explaining the bodily resurrection of believers when the time comes for the consummation of all things. So when we looked at this first time, two weeks ago, we looked at number, Roman number one on our outline, the common ground. The common ground teaches that the resurrection is central to our beliefs. Looking in verse 15, excuse me, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, the common ground for our union with Christ is found in the gospel itself. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So all Christians stand united in this belief of the gospel message. The common ground of the message itself is found in verses 3 and 4. And this is what Paul had preached to them. And he says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So this is the gospel message in a nutshell. It is wonderfully simple And yet it is thoroughly profound as it tells the story of a God who loves His creation so much that He sends His one and only Son into the world that He created as a substitutionary sacrifice for the penalty of sin, thus achieving victory over sin and death through His resurrection. So this is what Paul is going to continue to unpack and deal with throughout the remainder of this chapter. So thirdly, in our outline from two weeks ago, the witnesses of this incredible event are noted for us in verses 5 through 8. He appeared to Cephas or Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500. He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then he appeared to Paul, as Paul tells us in the first-hand account, that he was the messenger, their personal messenger, Messenger of this incredible gospel message as he outlines for them in verses 9 through 11, summarizing Paul, who was the former persecutor of the church, who personally encountered the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, and now his life is committed to this message of the resurrected Christ that brought him to them just a few years ago. So remembering now that Paul's concern is not the Corinthians' disbelief in Christ's resurrection, but confusion about their own resurrection in the future. So number two in our outline in the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today is the certainty of the resurrection. Now this second section here is going to take us all the 
way through the end of verse 34, but this section will be divided into three parts. We're only going to look at the first part of this today, and that's when you breathe the sigh of relief that we're not going to try to get all the way through verse 34 this morning. Let's read together verses 12 through 19 and look at this first section of the second part of what Paul's argument to the church at Corinth is. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So Paul has already established the common ground that they share in their beliefs regarding the gospel message. And now what Paul is going to do is he's going to begin to deal with their point of disagreement, their own future bodily resurrection. And what he's going to do is he's going to unravel that belief because its logical conclusion is something that they could never, ever agree with. So this begins again in verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, and as we looked at two weeks ago, as Paul recounted what the gospel message was, and what it is he had taught them, and the reality that they had accepted it, and that they are now standing in this gospel message as their way of salvation, and as they're nodding along with what Paul has been saying, he asked the question, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead. So this is their position, even though they agree and believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. They believe the message as defined in verses 3 and 4, that Christ died, was buried, and that He was raised again. So what Paul is saying, if you believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, how can you not believe in your own future bodily resurrection? So what Paul is going to do is take their position of unbelief and show them the theological result of this position. So when we say we believe something to be true, and somebody who is very well versed in things of Scripture can say, well, if this is what you believe, then this has to be true, and this, and this, and this, and this. And as you go through the list, you come to the end and you go, well, I'm not sure I believe all of that. Well, if you can't believe all of that, then you cannot believe what you have said you believe that has created this dilemma for you or this inconsistency within the gospel message. So if there is no bodily resurrection, as they contend, as they believe, as a contrast to what they believe about Christ himself, if there is no bodily resurrection, Paul would say in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, Not even Christ has been raised. So this is the first theological result of their denial of a bodily resurrection is, another A, Christ has not been raised. 
Now, this is probably the central point that Paul is going to make in this argument and what he is going to continue to do in this section and in greater detail later through the chapter is explain why Christ has not been raised if they don't believe in a bodily resurrection. Paul begins by saying, if the dead cannot be right, can, cannot be raised, then Christ wasn't raised either. Now, a part of this is what I alluded to earlier, is that the Corinthians were influenced by the plethora of Greek thought that was prominent in the day. If you remember, Dozens of sources of truth, none of them really agreed with one another, varying accounts, varying ideas, varying ideologies, and all of these would potentially influence where the Corinthians have landed on this subject of bodily resurrection. So a basic belief of much of ancient Greek philosophy was this thing called dualism. Dualism considered everything spiritual to be intrinsically good and everything physical to be intrinsically evil. Therefore, the idea of an evil physical body being raised was offensive to them. Now, if you go back and read through various sections that Paul has already dealt with, this is one of the reasons why Paul taught them that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. They believed that their physical bodies were evil, that didn't matter what they did with them or what they did to them. And this becomes an extension of this dualistic thought that if our body is physically evil then why would we want it to be raised into an afterlife? For them, the afterlife was a way to escape all things physical in the present world. So for those Greeks, their bodies were the last things that they would want to take along to the next life. Now, we don't believe in dualism, but let me let me say it this way. Some of us are older than others, and some of us have physical difficulties that make life in this present world very, very difficult, very uncomfortable, and very unwelcome. You know, the older you get, each new decade introduces a new set of aches and pains and challenges and problems and limitations. And so if you were to be raised with the present body that you have now, you might go, well, gee, I wish it was a little better than that. Don't you? I do, and I'm not even that old, relatively speaking. So in a sense, we can identify with this dualistic thought, but not in the way that they did. They believed that their bodies were intrinsically evil, so why would we want to take something evil with us into the afterlife if the spirit world is good and perfect and all that we desire to be a part of? So they believed in the immortality of the soul, but they strongly opposed the idea of a bodily resurrection. So Paul's argument is that if one denies bodily resurrection in general, then Christ could not be raised either. Now this opens up another part of the ancient argument against the the dual nature of Christ. We understand Him to be fully human and yet fully divine. He was the God-man. He was human. He experienced everything that we experienced, was tempted in every way that we were tempted, yet in His Spirit He was God. And 
so we understand some of that challenge and some of that contrast. And so to deny the resurrection of Christ is a totally different argument and problem, but that's not where the Corinthians are. They simply deny the resurrection of the body. And Paul says, if you are going to deny that, then you're going to have to deny the resurrection of Christ. Now again, he will develop this more fully in this center section of 1 Corinthians 15. He'll develop this this out later, and I'll be able to explain this in a way that will make a lot more sense at that point. To do so now would not be very beneficial in where we are right now. So if Christ has not been raised, then let her be, preaching the gospel is vain. Verse 14, the beginning part, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain. That word vain in the Greek means meaningless. Our preaching is meaningless. If Christ has not been raised, the gospel is meaningless. Without the resurrection, there is no good news. There is only bad news because apart from the resurrection, Jesus could not have conquered sin or death or hell. And these were, these are the three great evils that are forever man's conqueror apart from our faith in the resurrected Christ. So without the resurrection, the gospel would be an empty, hopeless message of meaningless nonsense. It would be little more than just another list of rules and regulations, of do's and don'ts, of some kind of religious or spiritual expression that never really solved the basic problem of man, and that is the inability to meet the standard of a holy and a righteous God. So if Jesus was not raised, then preaching and teaching His message of repentance and belief in Him for the forgiveness of sin, believing in His claims to deity, His lordship over all creation, all of that message is simply a waste of time and further perpetuates a worthless myth. Now today our world is filled with spiritual myth in the form of religious expression or religious belief that have nothing to do with Jesus. They don't believe in a resurrected Jesus. They don't believe in the Lordship of Jesus. They don't believe in God known as Jesus. And all of those religious expressions, we would say, are worthless. And so what Paul says is that if Christ has not been raised from the dead then the gospel message is meaningless. What we preach, what we teach, what we've committed our life to is absolutely meaningless. Let her see, Paul says in the second part of verse 14, your faith also is vain. Your faith is meaningless. A dead Christ cannot provide life. A dead Christ cannot provide hope. Our belief in Christ would be empty and it would be meaningless because Jesus would only have been a good man who lived a while and had a large following and taught social revolutionary ideas and lived a life of exemplary morals. But if he was not raised from the dead, then our faith in him is completely meaningless. Our faith... And a non-resurrected Christ would be faith in a liar who willingly made false claims about himself. Or it would be faith in a lunatic who made delusional claims about being the Son of God. If you go through and read the statements Jesus made about himself through the Gospel of John, His coming from the Father, His union with the Father, Him speaking on behalf of the Father, Him doing on behalf of the Father... All of that would be lies 
or would be delusion apart from the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead. So our faith would be meaningless. The gospel message would be meaningless. And this leads Paul to verse 15, letter D in our outline. The apostles then are also false witnesses. They have given themselves over willingly or delusionally to a lie. Verse 15, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Now the apostles, or the original disciples minus Judas plus Paul, these apostles swore that God raised Jesus from the dead. They claimed to have spent bits and pieces of 40 days with Jesus after His resurrection, eating with Him, drinking with Him, fellowshipping with Him. And this is accounted for us through the apostles in Acts chapter 10, verses 39 to 41. We, the apostles collectively speaking, are witnesses of all the things He did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And here's the gospel message. They put Him to death by hanging Him on a cross. God raised Him up on the third day and granted that He become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen before Him by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with Him after He arose from the dead. So this is the statement that the apostles made about their own experience with the resurrected Christ. And if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then the apostles are all false witnesses and willing, willingly colluding with this spiritual myth about who Jesus claimed to be and was actually not. Paul swore that he, that he, Jesus, appeared to him several times and gave to him specific revelation, which is counted for to us through various books that Paul had written that are included in our New Testament. So these men, the apostles and Paul, spent the remainder of their lives teaching about Jesus, teaching his message, telling about his ministry, and if Jesus was not raised, then they were intentional false witnesses and they would be lying in the name of God, they would be testifying against God that God actually raised Jesus from the dead. They would be attributing to God something that God did not do. They would then be lying about God and taking His name in vain if they were not, in fact, first-hand witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. So there is no way they could have been deceived or mistaken. Either they told the truth or they were deliberate liars, deceivers, and frauds. Now keep in mind, 11 of these 12 apostles died a martyr's death, which begs the question, why would they be willing to die for this person that they knew had not been raised? Why would they be willing to die and perpetuate this lie? So if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then the apostles are all false witnesses. Letter E, another terrible conclusion if Christ has not been raised is that we are still in our sin. We are still in our sin. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sin. 
Now, to be in something means exactly that. You are in this building. You are sitting in that chair. Think about being in a deep, deep hole. You are in that hole. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are still in our sin. If there is no bodily resurrection, then there was no victory over sin. There is no forgiveness for sin. Jesus simply died and sin was victorious over him. Now remember, why did Jesus die on the cross? He died as a substitutionary atonement or sacrifice taking upon himself the penalty and the consequence of our sin. And that's, that victory was granted to him and to us through his resurrection. And if Jesus was not raised, then we are still in our sin. There is no forgiveness that could be given to us through Him that would satisfy the righteous requirement of a holy God. Jesus would have become a sacrifice that would not have been able to end our bondage to sin. He would just been a good man who died for a noble cause, but actually did nothing and accomplished nothing for those who believed in Him. So if Christ was not raised and He did not bring forgiveness of sin, He did not bring salvation, He did not bring reconciliation between us and God, He did not provide for our spiritual life in the present or in a future eternity, our faith is in vain because we are still in our sin. And if that is true, Paul would tell us in letter F, that believers have perished at death. Verse 18, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now this experience is thought to be one of the biggest contributors to the question that they had about the impact of the bodily resurrection. Since that was their position, that the dead are not raised, the question is, well, what has happened to our friends who are believers in Christ? What has happened to them now that they have died? If there is no bodily resurrection, what's happened? They don't have an answer to that question. Again, because of what they currently believe, and again, because Paul has not taught through this with them or with any other. So this was a big problem for them, and again, Paul is going to deal with this in greater detail a little bit later on in the chapter, and I'll be certain to remind you of this issue when we get there. He is still building his argument against their disbelief in the bodily resurrection. He is putting the pieces together as to why they cannot possibly believe that there is no bodily resurrection, because if that is true and our faith is vain and we're still in our sin, then believers at death have just perished. They simply cease to exist. If there is no bodily resurrection and Christ was not raised, then when you and I die, when the friends of the Corinthians have died, they just cease to be. Think about that. If this were to be true, every Old Testament prophet, every person listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, every apostle, every person who ever claimed faith in Christ would be lost. They would simply cease to exist 
when their life came to an end. Now, all of these other religious expressions seem seek to answer the question, what happens when we die? And some believe that you're reincarnated into another life form, into either a human or an animal. Some believe that your spirit just goes out into the nether world and just is there in eternity doing nothing, floating around. Most all religious expressions seek to answer that question. And this is what Jesus uniquely answers in his own life and in his own ministry. And yet to deny his, excuse me, to deny the bodily resurrection, our bodily resurrection in the future is to deny his own bodily resurrection, which means that when we die, we just cease to be. No person would be saved and no person could ever be saved if Christ was not raised from the dead, which is the result, if there is, no bodily resurrection from the dead. So lastly, letter G, Christians, therefore, are to be pitied. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now, I think that when Paul says we of all men is probably thinking specifically about himself and the other apostles, but certainly it would be true that all Christians then would be pitied. Without the resurrection, we have no Savior. We have no forgiveness. We have no gospel. We have no meaningful faith. We have no spiritual life. We have no hope for any of these things apart from the resurrected Christ. So Paul says to have hoped in Christ in this life only for Paul, for the apostles, for others, would be to, to teach, to preach, to suffer, to sacrifice, and to work tirelessly for absolutely nothing. If Christ is still dead, then he cannot help us regarding the life to come, and he cannot help us now. If he has not been raised from the dead, where would be our source of peace, our source of joy? Where would be our satisfaction in life here on earth? The Christian life would be a mockery, a charade, a tragic joke. And make no mistake about it, there are many in our world today that do not believe in a resurrected Christ. They do not believe in the truth of the gospel message. And that is flipped on us if there is no resurrection from the dead. Because if that is true, then Christ has not been raised. And our lives as Christians amounts to nothing, and we are of all men most to be pitied. So it is very likely as Paul has begun to articulate the logical conclusion of denying a bodily resurrection is a little bit more than what they bargained for. They probably had not thought this through very clearly. And it's likely that as Paul has gone through and articulated the outcome of denying the bodily resurrection, that they are ready to hear what it is Paul wants to say to them. And hopefully they would say, well, maybe we don't have this right. We potentially are wrong in this, and so we need to know what happens when we die if there is a bodily resurrection, what is that going to be like? Well, Paul is going to begin to fill in the gaps of this issue that relates to the bodily resurrection. Again, not a detailed end times or eschatological position. But the takeaway for me in this 
is they think about denying the central tenets of the gospel message if we don't believe that He is who He says He is, if we don't believe that He has done what He has claimed to have done, then our faith is meaningless. What we have given our lives to is pointless. The hope that we have is lost like the air in a deflated balloon. There's just nothing there. But the reality is, the gospel message is true. That He is who He claimed to be. That He has done what He was sent to do. And that He has been raised from the dead, which is the second section, the the title of the second section we're going to look at next week. Christ has been raised. And Paul will now begin to articulate the reality of that and what that means for all believers and most specifically for the, for the Corinthians who had these significant questions about the bodily resurrection. But you know what? We gather here today, we look at the adoration of this tree, the adornment of this tree, the songs that we have sing, the song, and we have done all of that because we are convinced that He is who He says He is, that He has done what He set out to do, and that we rest securely in the truth of the Gospel message accomplished through the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray.